Y'all, thanks for being here tonight. Um, my name is John Trapp. I'm the campus minister here at um, University of Texas for RUF. And if this is your first time especially, we're just really glad that you're here. Um, RUF is a ministry where we believe that everyone um, needs the grace of God. And that the good news of the Bible is that God is willing and able to give grace to people um, no matter who they are. And that's one of the things we're going to look at today. That God's grace is a grace that goes outside the lines. It's a grace that is for all kinds of people. It's, for, it's a grace that's for people who are religious and for people who are irreligious. And that's good news. And I want to look at that today with y'all. Um, when I was in college, I got the chance to go study abroad uh, for a summer. And I went to Italy with one of my best friends. We studied in Florence. It was incredible. And we also did some traveling around um, a lot of Europe. And a couple years ago, I was looking back at the pictures that he and I took while we were there. And I kind of noticed a startling trend in all of the pictures. So we went and saw all these amazing things. And... um, What I realized is I really didn't take many pictures of just beautiful things that we were seeing. I pretty much was only taking pictures of myself in front of beautiful things all the time. So like here's this amazing tower of Pisa, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And the only picture I have of the Leaning Tower of Pisa is me with like my foot on it, you know, like acting like I'm kicking kicking it over. And then like four other pictures where I didn't have my foot quite right and it doesn't look like I'm kicking it over. It just looks like I'm randomly lifting my foot up. Or there's a picture I have of the Mona Lisa, but it's just me standing next to the Mona Lisa doing the Mona Lisa pose. Uh, there's a picture of us. We get we, the World Cup was going on then. We actually got into a World Cup game. There's a picture of the World Cup, but it's not the World Cup happening. It's me standing in front of the World Cup game with my arms out like this, with like a big smile on my face. Here's the thing: as I'm looking through these pictures, I'm like, wow. I, I kind of like was self-obsessed in a lot of ways while I'm taking these pictures. Like all these beautiful things, the beautiful places, amazing places we went to really only served as a backdrop for me. And I think it's like, this is kind of pre-selfie, pre-smartphone, but now we even have more of a culture of this where um, we have the selfie, we even have selfie sticks, although people thankfully aren't using that quite as much as they used to. But um, we live as if ourselves, as if our preferences, our comfort, and our lives are the most important. We, we, and you can see that in the, the pictures we take, um, and, but also the way that we treat people. You see, as a result, because we live as if ourselves and our preferences and our comfort and our lives are most important, as a result, we're good at loving people who are just like us. But when it comes to loving outside the lines, that's where we often fail. And when I say we, I'm also talking about the Christian church in America. But here's the thing. What we're going to see in this passage I'm about to read is that God's standard for love is everybody, always. That's who God calls his church to love. Everybody, always. 
A love that stretches outside the boundaries of people who grew up like we did, who look like we did, like we do. And I want to be clear before I read this passage. Politics is not the origin of what I'm going to talk about tonight. This is you're not about to get like a politically correct message from the Bible, because I think the origins that we have for valuing and loving everybody always where we get that is from God himself. God himself, the Christian God of the Bible, we believe is a triune God, meaning that he is three in one. Meaning he is diverse and unified in his essence. Three in one, one in three. And so because of that, we find that as we are created in his image, that we are meant to bear his image uniquely, but also in unity. And it's interesting, if you look at the first sin that happens in the Bible in Genesis 3... There's two things that immediately happens that are recorded when Adam and Eve eat the fruit. They hide. But they hide in two ways. First, they hide from each other. They see that they're naked and they cover themselves. Then they hide from God when he comes looking for them. And here's what I want you to see. A lot of times in the church, we think about how God is reconciling us from the way that we hide from him, how God is coming out and seeking us and finding us and reconciling us to himself. And that is true. That is gospel truth because of the work that Jesus has done. But God, in his providence and love, is not going to stop there. He's not only going to reconcile us to himself. The goal of his good gospel is that he's also going to begin unwinding the ways that we hide and separate, separate and segregate from one another. That God is actually going to begin not only reconciling us to himself, but also reconciling us to one another. And we're going to see this in the life of Peter. We've been going through all the semester and looking, how, at, looking at how Peter sees who Jesus is. And how Jesus works in his life. And we've talked about how Jesus has shown Peter great grace over and over and over again to this guy who fails all the time. And now we're going to see what Jesus calls Peter to do, the way he calls Peter to love. And this is a long passage we're going to look at. That's why I'm going to read it. I'm not going to make one of y'all read this big old kahuna. And it's easy, I know, when, we're, when you read a long passage like this to kind of let your mind wonder. But this is a great story. I'm going to try to read it like a, like a story, Okay reverently but like a story because it's what it is it's a true story that's given to us so that we can see what exactly god's up to so i'll begin in acts 10 verse 1 at caesarea there was a man named cornelius a centurion of what was known as the italian cohort a devout man who feared god with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to god About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. 
When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened. And something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day, he, Peter, rose and went away with him. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, Do you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation? But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, Your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon at Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is God's word for us. Let me pray and we'll dive in. Lord, thank you so much for the chance to unpack this beautiful story. And I pray that you would um, help us now to understand what it is that you're up to. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I want to look at two things um, tonight. One, I want to look at what this passage says about our hearts and what this passage says about God's heart. And I'm getting a lot of help um, today from a friend of mine named Russell Whitfield. Um, 
and his, his thinking has really formed a lot of what I'm going to say tonight. Um, but first off, I want to look at what this passage says about our hearts. And to appreciate what's going on in this passage, I'm going to take you back just a few chapters before and remind you of what's happening in the book of Acts, okay? In Acts 1, Jesus gathers his disciples together, and he's about to ascend into heaven. And what he tells them is he says, I'm going to make, I'm going to send you out. I'm going to give you the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? And I'm going to send you out to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And the disciples would have heard that and be like, sweet, yeah, hometown. And he says, I'm going to send you out to Jerusalem and to, and to Judea. Awesome, hometown. And to Samaria. What? That's what they would have done. Huh? What did he say? Samaria? That's not our people. Like, the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't interact at all, really. And then he, he doubles down on that. He says, I'm going to send you to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then what we looked at last week happens in chapter 2. You've got all of these people who are gathered from all over the world, but all of them are Jews. And they all gather because it's the, the Feast of Pentecost, which is a big feast that would happen in Jerusalem. And so they've all come to feast together and to worship together. And that's when the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples and they begin speaking each in the native tongue of all of these people who have come from all over the nations. And so we see the beginning of what God is doing, that he is going to bring the nations in. But these people are all still Jews. They're all, they're all kind of their type of people. It's their people. But what we're going to see is that God, God's mission isn't just for their people. It's for those people. And every single person in this room now has a those people in their life. Someone who is way different than you. Someone who maybe makes you feel uncomfortable or who you would not naturally go up and approach. And what God is, show, is going to show them is that the gospel is not just for their people, but it's also for those people. And the way that he does this is through this guy named Stephen. So in Acts chapter 7, we see that Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr. He dies for what he believes. And after that happens, God in his providence uses the suffering of his people to disperse them all back to where they're from. And so now you have all of these people who've converted to Christ followers. And now they're being sent back into the nations. They're being dispersed. And then Acts begins showing, hey, okay, so this is the beginning of the early church. This is how it starts to unfold. This is who God is coming after. And there's these four, these four um, conversions that theologians talk about in the book of Acts that happen after this dispersion. The first one is to Samaritans. Philip goes out. They've been in Jerusalem. Remember Jesus said, I'm going to send you to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. They go, they've been in Jerusalem and they've been in Judea. Now Philip shows up in Samaria and he begins telling the gospel to them and they all begin believing in Jesus. But then right after that, there is a man who's an Ethiopian eunuch, a black African, is in his chariot. He's reading an Isaiah scroll, an Isaiah scroll that talks about how God is going to restore the eunuch. And Philip's, the Holy Spirit tells Philip, you need to go up and talk to that guy. And Philip kind of like walks up to him. He's like, hey, man, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy's like, nope. How can I understand if no one teaches me? 
And Philip teaches him. And this Ethiopian man becomes the second major conversion in the book of Acts. But then there's a third conversion that happens. The third conversion is for the person who was in charge of martyring Stephen, of killing Stephen. It's Saul of Tarsus. Saul, who, who was like, Saul was like a terrorist to the early church. We don't think of that a lot. Saul, who later became Paul and wrote a lot of the New Testament, he was, the thing that we know about him, what's said about him right before he converts, the last thing we hear about him is that he's entering into people's homes. He's like kicking doors down and pulling people away from, like pulling mothers away from their kids, fathers away from their wives. He's pulling people away from one another and he's having them arrested and committed to prison. And, and so what we see is that God begins converting enemies. They're enemies. Those people. And now we come to the fourth conversion. It's this Italian man. An Italian man named Cornelius. Who's, he's a Roman. He's a centurion. He's a Gentile. He is so different than, than all the other Christians that Peter has been associated with. And God is going to do something in Peter's heart. And my friend Russ, who I'm, I'm getting a lot of this from, he says he really thinks that there's a fifth conversion that we're seeing here in the book of Acts. And it's a cross-cultural conversion. It's a cross-cultural conversion of Peter. Because Peter is about to have his mind blown about what kinds of people that God is going to bring into his family. Because Peter... Peter has a very narrow vision. And Peter's going to have that changed. And God is going to do a work to begin reconciling people to those people. To people who are different than them. And I want, you to, I want, to, I want to tell you that, that this message, this isn't just a hobby for people who are like interested in this kind of thing. Like, man, that's cool. Like the racial reconciliation thing. Like that's, man, I know some people are into that. Like I'm into theology. Or, you know, I'm, I'm into praise and worship music. That's kind of like my Christian thing. What we're seeing here is that Peter is going to be changed and sanctified and made more like Jesus as he sees what kind of, what kind of work that God is going to do to reconcile people to one another. And so God sends Peter this vision to prepare him for the arrival of Cornelius' entourage. It's this kind of strange vision. Did you catch it while I was reading it? That Peter sees this sheet and all of these animals descending. And did you, it's, it's a little bit comic how it happens. Because in, as Peter's seeing this vision, God, he sees like all these animals that Jews would never, ever touch. They were unclean animals to them. And God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter starts having an argument with God. He starts having an argument with God. Which, by the way, isn't the first time he's done this. Remember when he rebukes Jesus? Peter starts arguing with God. He says, God, by no means. Lord, I I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And then you hear the, the voice say, what God has made clean, do not call common. And then it happens again. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. By no means. I've never eaten anything like that before. Do not call what, is, do not call what God has made clean um, common. And then a third time, rise, Peter. I would be like, rise, Peter, kill it. You know, like he, 
He's arguing with God. And then finally, the, the final time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And Peter is like perplexed and he doesn't know what's going on. You hear like a knock on the door. Knock, knock, knock. Guess who showed up? It's this group of people that Cornelius has sent. A bunch of Gentiles are standing at the gate. What is God doing here? Um, maybe you've been, have, maybe, have you ever been to like a meal where somebody from a different culture is hosting you and they bring out food that you just have never even seen or touched before? I'm from a really small town in Alabama and um, I had a friend in high school and their extended family, have any of y'all seen Forrest Gump before? Okay, so you know the kind of people who are in Forrest Gump? Imagine, just imagine like the countryest of country people, okay? That was my friend's extended family. And they invited me over to their like family dinner. And so I was like, okay, cool. Like I'm going to come hang out with y'all. And so we're sitting there eating and they're kind of bringing out food and putting it on our plates. And this like kind of white stringy meat gets put on my plate. And I'm like, I feel like I should ask what this is. Not really sure. And I'm like about to, I'm, I'm about to bite into it. And his grandfather kind of leans over. He's like, you ever had possum before? I was like, why, no, I have not. Um, he's like, I hope you like it. You know? <laughs> like, okay. And in my head, I'm like, I really don't want to eat this. Like this, I can't believe I'm about to put a possum in my mouth. But I eat it, you know. Like, terrified the whole time. But what we're seeing here is this illustration that Peter is... Peter is repulsed by this food that God is telling him to eat. But what God is showing him is that it's not just about the food on the sheet that's being descended down. It's, the food is a representation of his heart and the way his heart is repulsed by those people. He's getting a sense of the ugliness of his own heart because he thinks they're unclean. And the thing is, we're all like this too. All of us have, in different ways, our hearts are repulsed by those people. Think of like, man, like think of how tribal our culture has become. We we group up with people like us, we live in neighborhoods with people like us, we form alliances with people like us, and then we refuse to listen to people on the other side. Even like the way our social media works, like the algorithms like form this kind of echo chamber of things that we already believe. And kind of deafen us to the voice of other people. Whether it's other people's political views, or other people's religious views, or other people's whatever. And my question is, like, who is that? Who are, who are those people for you? Like, do you look at someone as they walk into a classroom and determine you don't care to know them? because of what they're wearing. Maybe they're wearing a shirt with Greek letters on it. Or maybe, maybe they're wearing an LGBTQA shirt. Or maybe horror of horrors, they're wearing a Dallas Cowboys shirt. Or like whatever it is. Do you look at someone and just determine, I'm, I'm probably not gonna be their friend. Or I'm not really gonna make any effort with that person because they're one of those people course you do we all do this 
I mean, I've had, it's been interesting even talking to students while I've been here a few years. Like, I've had, some, I've had students who are in, like, a certain department that may be um, on, like, the left side of things, kind of liberal or progressive. And the students will be like, you know what, I'm, I kind of don't like wearing my Greek shirts over there because I'm afraid of, like, what people will think of me. So I just don't wear my Greek letters when I go to class. And on, on, like, the other side, I've heard, I've had lunches with students who are minorities. And uh, they've said, you know what, I actually don't feel super safe walking around parts of West Campus at night because things have happened to some of my friends when they've been walking around West Campus or some things have been said to them or shouted to them. Like, the reality is that this cuts both ways. The way that we see people and see them as those people, just like Peter's doing here. We all do this. And the, the solution that our culture holds out to us is what's going to make things better is tolerance. Like, we just need to tolerate each other. Um, but the reality is you can tolerate someone but still not want to have anything to do with them. And... You can tolerate someone, but still not even see them. And this has been so convicting for me because I see this in myself. That I can just look past a person. And, you know, it's like they, they talk about how um, the, the worst kind of hatred, like the ultimate kind of hatred is just indifference to just not even see someone. And we do that. You maybe walk into a room like this sometimes and just don't see some people. Because they're those people. But the answer to this is not tolerance. That's not going to fix things. But what we have in the gospel, the virtue that the scriptures give to us that's so much better is love. We have love. Love compels us to move towards those people. Because we remember... How Jesus showed his disciples love. Jesus was the kind of person who's always moving over boundaries to go and love someone. He's always the one who's taking the lowest seat. In fact, when he shows his disciples, this is what love looks like. He gets the, he he robes himself as if he's a servant, as a servant, and begins washing their feet. This is the kind of love of God. And he washes anyone who would believe in him in the same way. He serves you. Mark 10, 45 says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And who are those many? It's many people like Peter who are screw-ups, like me. He has come and moved towards those people. And we have a God like that. That's God's heart. (laughs) And that's what we see here with Peter. Like, God is changing Peter. In verse 28, Peter shows up and he's like, hey, look, um, like, y'all know that I'm Jewish and I'm not supposed to be coming into this house. Like, this is a social taboo. He, he goes with the people who come and find him. He goes to Cornelius' house and he's like, man, like, this is a ma- massive social taboo that I'm walking into this house right now. Um, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And so Peter walks into Cornelius' house. How can he do that? 
Because of what he says one verse earlier in verse 27. They all, they all see Peter come in and they begin worshiping him. Because he's this man who's sent from God. And Peter says, don't do that because I too am a man. And here's what, Peter, here's what Peter is saying in that. I'm not God. I'm a man. He remembers his own humanity. Peter knows his own flaws. Peter remembers all. And, we, and by the way, if you've been here any amount of time this semester, you've heard over and over and over again just how flawed Peter is. He's, this guy, he's the guy who's faithless when he's walking on water and begins to sink. He's the guy who rebukes Jesus when Jesus tells him what kind of Messiah he's going to be. He's the guy who denies Jesus because he's afraid of a little servant girl. He's the guy who falls asleep on Jesus when Jesus asks him to stay up and pray with him when he's really afraid. Peter fails all the time. And so Peter says, don't worship me because look, I too am a man. And yet... What Jesus has done for me is he has come and cleaned me. He has come and showed me grace when I was one of those people. He has loved me. Jesus has cleaned Peter. God has reconciled Peter to himself through the work of Christ. And now what God is going to do is he's going to reconcile people together too through the work of Peter. Through the Holy Spirit's work through Peter. And so my question for you, this is, and really this question is specific to anyone who would be here and say, I'm a Christian. Are you doing this same work? Like, here's a diagnostic for you to think about that. If Jesus treated me the same way that I treat people who are different than me, where would I be? If Jesus treated me the same way, that I treat people who are different than me, where would I be? Like, think about the excuses for why we don't pursue those people. Like, maybe it might sound something like this. I mean, like, I don't know, we're just different. Like, we don't have a lot in common. I don't really know what I'd say to them. We're just different. Imagine if Jesus, when the Father says, I'm, like, I, want, I want you to go and save them, if Jesus is like, I don't like. We're just different. Like, I'm holy. They're unholy. Um, I'm eternal. They're not. I'm powerful. They're weak. We're just, we're just different. Or, or what about when we say, like, it's like, it's going to be awkward. Like, I, uh, I, don't, I won't know what to say. What if Jesus, standing before the Father, was like, you know what, Father, like, it's going to be awkward. Like, I'm, I'm going to go to them, and I'm going to show them all these miracles. I'm going to feed 5,000 people, and then we're going to get on a boat, and they're going to be afraid about, like, where we're going to get bread. Like, it's just going to be awkward. They're not going to get it. I don't know what to do with them. Or, like, you know what? They don't, I don't even know if, if those people want anything to do with me. Like, I don't know if they'll even want me to, to, to move towards them or anything. Like, what if they reject me? <laughs> What if Jesus comes to the Father and says, you know what, Father, like, you've read the Old Testament. You've read, you know what the psalmist says, that like, no one seeks after you. That no, like, like no one wants, wants to come to you. So like, I don't know, like, what if they don't want me? Like, what if they don't want me to come to them? Which, by the way, guess what? None of us did. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus pushes through these barriers. Our life depended... The Christian's salvation depends 
on the God of the universe exercising this same kind of cross-cultural, over-the-boundary love. That's why my friend Russ Whitfield says, this is not about adding to the gospel. It's about adding up the gospel. Jesus becomes what he was not so that we could become what we were not. This isn't about like condescending to those people like, oh, like they need my help. No, it's like, you know what? I see in them that I am the same. And God moved towards me when I didn't deserve it. And I would love to like begin moving towards people who are different than me because that's what God has done for me in his grace. And you know what's funny is like, I mean, I I could preach a whole other sermon about this. I promise I'm not. I'm almost done. But like, Peter messes up with this still. Like in Galatians 2, Paul tells the church in Galatia, hey, y'all, you know what? I had to reprimand Peter. Peter messed up again. Like he was having a meal with Gentiles and then some of the Jews showed up and Peter like kind of withdrew from the Gentiles because he was embarrassed and didn't want to get judged. Like Peter still struggles with racism, even after this happens. And yet, what does God do over and over and over again? He shows him grace. And he begins changing him over time. So much so that in 1 Peter, when Peter is writing to Christians all over the world, Christians in Pontus, in Galatia, in Cappadocia, in Asia, in Bithynia, that's who he addresses his letter to, he tells them that they are a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. He says that they may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. He says, once you were a people, but now you are God's people. He says, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy. The gospel has gone across lines, across borders. Did you know that this is why Christianity, the center of Christendom, like what I mean by that is like where where you can find the most Christians, it's the only world religion where that has geographically changed over the course of history. Every, every other major world religion, wherever it started, that's still where the most people of that religion still live. That's like still where the center is. But Christianity is totally unique in the sense that it has always been moving. Like it started in the Middle East and then it moved up into Rome and then it moved into Europe. And then the center of Christendom moved west into the new world. And now we're living in a moment where it's changing again. Where there's more Christians in the southern hemisphere than anywhere else in the world. Specifically in places like Africa and China. Where the gospel is going forth once again to all kinds of people across all kinds of boundaries. Because this is the kind of God that we serve. Who shows that all people are made in his image and are precious and are worthy of our love. It's why in Revelation 7, when we see what heaven is going to look like, it is filled with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Welcome to the table of God. Brought in by His grace. So, like, what does that mean for us? I don't want you to, listen, I don't want you to leave tonight, like, Ashamed. I will say planning this has been super convicting for me. (laughs) Like super convicting. What I would love for you to do 
if you're a Christian and you're involved with RUF, would be to just start praying and asking God, like, what would it look like for you to help us move towards people who are different? Can I tell you something? I'm already seeing y'all do that. Like, this is our second year of doing large group every week. It has been beautiful to watch ways that God is already bringing people from different parts of campus and kind of like integrating y'all more. And I'm encouraged by that, and I see that. What would it look like for Texas RUF to be a place? Because guess what? Austin is one of the most segregated cities in the country. I don't know if you knew that. And I don't know if you've noticed, but our campus is pretty segregated. And I don't, I'm not just talking about like ethnically segregated. I mean like socioeconomically segregated. We're segre- we segregate ourselves by um, the kind of education that we have, where we're from, like what high school we went to, whatever. What would it look like if someone came into this room and they saw a bunch of different kinds of people who are united and reconciled to each other in love because of what God has done? I think it would like really be incredible. And I think it kind of is. I think y'all are doing that now. And I want to urge you towards that. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I just want to hold this out to you and say, like, the gospel is for everyone. Like, God loves... Jesus became what he was not. He wasn't always a man. But he will always be a man now. He permanently altered himself and became what he was not so that you could become what you were not. So that you could become part of his family, the family of God. So that you can be his child and be with him. Be with your father for eternity. That's what he holds out to you. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much that you are this kind of God. And I pray that you would help us to consider what it would be like to be these kinds of people. To, uh, to love across boundaries, to, um, to see ourselves in one another, and to point people to the truth and to rest in the truth of the good news of the gospel. And I pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more song.